All right, here we go. Uh, let's, uh, let's pray together. God, we are grateful to have been able to assemble together again today. Thank you for bringing us here safely. We all carry a variety of challenges and burdens and frustrations and disappointments and excitements. Uh, and so we pause in all those things to say thank you and um, to help us as we endure, hold us fast even when um, we are prone to wander. And we pray for your continued help as we consider these difficult things, uh, forgiveness, and particularly as we reach into conflict resolution that doesn't necessarily involve sin, we, we pray uh, for even more wisdom and more grace to have conversations and that what we talk about in this class would uh, actually make a difference in the workplace and in the home uh, in ordinary conversations. So be with us, please. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if uh, you are visiting with us today, we are in the middle of a series on peacemaking and presuppositions, which, as we talked about, wins most scintillating title of the year for the Sunday school. In the Sunday school title competition, it is definitely the most compelling. Uh, that is, of course, extremely dry humor for not not being compelling at all. But we are we are nearing the end of the forgiveness and the peacemaking part of what I would consider your traditional understanding of conflict resolution. So we've been we've covered a lot of ground. We covered confrontation. We've covered different kinds of forgiveness. We've talked about can I forgive and still be hurt? We've talked about attitudinal forgiveness. We've talked about transacted forgiveness, even though that's what we're going to close with right here. Uh, we have talked about have a, questions to ask. Have I actually forgiven? We, we've we've tried to be extremely extremely practical. Uh, if you'll recall, though, the point is to kind of have two halves of this series because there are some people who just love the practical. It's like oh, the practical. I want to know like what I can go do now when I walk out this door. Like what can I say or do? And there are some people who love the theology and the philosophy and the more technical stuff. And that's fine. I love both of them, okay? And you can love both of them. But today we'll certainly, without any equivocation, mark the shift into the uh, slightly more philosophical, theological, uh, and, and we're going to dip our toes in a field of philosophical study called epistemology. Don't be scared. This is going to be a very high-level tour. We'll go very slow. I'll answer all the questions that I can uh, but th this is this is important stuff, and I think you'll the, the the importance of it will be crystallized as we move through. I try to give some examples, and we interact on some of this material. Okay, but let me just conclude uh, with the two with with the the very final part of reconciliation, and this is that that transacted forgiveness. Okay, so we talked about having that disposition of forgiveness, uh, but but ultimately we can't control if someone doesn't come to us and ask for forgiveness. They, we, we can't control whether or not someone comes to us and actually achieves reconciliation. Maybe we even go to them, but they, in other words, it's a, it takes two to have real reconciliation. Reconciliation cannot just happen with one person in a conflict, okay? It takes both people to reconcile. It only takes you to have a disposition of forgiveness, a disposition of kindness, a disposition of wanting to reconcile in one way or another, but it simply, simply put, it takes the offender asking for forgiveness to actually bring about reconciliation. Um, and when you have this transacted forgiveness, it completes the cancellation of a relational debt. And remember, that's how we understood kind of the nature of forgiveness. When I said, well, what does it mean to forgive? Can anyone provide a succinct, quick 
definition and it is a bit elusive but when, when i think when we look at the biblical text it seems something like can, canceling a relational canceling a relational debt and we look at the parable of the uh of the unmerciful servant uh, as as a partial dem- or really as an example of that a way to understand that um, i have wronged someone i stand in their relational debt and i'm canceling that debt or someone is canceling that debt for me if they forgive me, okay? And then to state the obvious, transacted forgiveness cannot happen first without the attitudinal forgiveness, right? I can't be reconciled with someone if I have no desire to forgive them in my heart. It's not how reconciliation works, certainly not how the gospel works. Again, um, because we're not God, the kind of what would Jesus do thing is very perilous ground to like base your Christian ethic on. But when you think about reconciliation, think about how God has reconciled us to him in the gospel. You know, there are some people who do the Christian life as though God kind of loves them, like they love their family members that they don't like seeing at Thanksgiving, but they don't, they're not liked by God, right? Like God doesn't enjoy you. It's like he puts up with you because you're part of the family, like that uncle everyone can't stand. But, but that you don't really enjoy that person. If they weren't there, they'd be, you'd be like, oh, no, what a tragedy. Uncle John isn't coming, you know? Um, we love him, though. We love we love Uncle John. It's, but this reason, Uncle John is really more tolerated and loved, and he's not really liked. But I want to suggest is that God God delights in us. He delights in us because Christ, we're united with Christ. We're indwelt by the Spirit. He has called us. He has adopted us as sons, and he doesn't hold our nose. He doesn't hold his nose while he keeps us a part of the family. Okay? And so uh, when you think about that, when you think of reconciliation with other people and that we're trying to forgive as Christ forgave us, think about it through that lens. Like, are we there yet? Are we there yet to reconciliation? Restoring things to at least what they could be or what they were before. I want to end this section of the course with the same caveat that I ended last week, that there are times where situations get very, very complicated and very, very messy, and we actually heard of, of one or two situations. Sometimes things involve abuse, things that involve uh, all kinds of trauma. And what would be a shame is to take some of these principles and, and kind of woodenly and naively go try to apply them as kind of these stock things to every single situation without understanding the context, without understanding nuance. Uh, so I want to provide the caveat that it would be terrible. I would be mortified to hear that in some you know, terrible situation. Someone had extracted this very a simplistic principle from this course material and was then going to try to tell a victim of some horrific this that they need to do this or feel this or whatever. Um, just, just don't do that. This requires wisdom. Okay, uh, in very difficult situations, I have a multitude of wise counselors around to work through some of these principles because it's going to look different. Okay. Any questions about before we pivot pretty seriously here? to the second part of the course, uh, or the class, whatever we call it here, class, Sunday school class. Uh, any questions at all about the peacemaking, the interpersonal peacemaking? Any questions? Okay, so let's talk about epistemology. And epistemology is what? Remember, I said it last time. Does anyone remember? Okay, so it is the study of knowledge and what? Just, just, justification. Yes, that's what Asher was going to say. Justification. It is the study of knowledge and justification, not to be confused with justification like the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Everyone's heard of that 
probably justification, right? This is not that. This is justification in why am I justified in believing something? Why do I have good reasons to hold to my claims? Uh, so let me just tell you the kinds of questions that epistemology answers. I have some of them written out here. What kinds of things can we know? What kinds of things can we know? Are there things that are impossible in principle to know? Uh, are there things that we could know, like how many stars there are exactly, but we just are limited in our ability to know that? Are there, does it, are there just unknowable truths in principle? Does that even make sense? What is required to claim that you actually know something? I mean, what's the difference between believing something and knowing something? What's the difference between believing something and being right and knowing something? Maybe you got lucky. What's required to claim that you actually know something? What counts as evidence? What counts as evidence for something? You say you believe this, you believe this. What actually counts as evidence that what you're saying is true versus what this other claim is or this other person is saying is true? Like what even would count? If I showed you this, if I brought this argument to bear, would that even count as evidence? If I cited this source, would that even count as evidence? What counts as evidence and what do I need? How much evidence do I need to rationally believe something? Do I need the same amount of evidence in every context to rationally believe things or not? Or does it change relative to context? We'll have to see. Who carries the burden of proof in establishing a claim? Who the, who's the one who, who, who is the one who should be giving the explanations and providing the arguments in a dialogue, in a conflict over ideology, philosophy, theology? How does burden of proof work? Do I, do I have, can you prove a negative? Do you ever have to prove a negative? Does that even make sense? How sure do you have to be to know something? I saw an advertisement on a football game the other day, where uh, the other day, I guess it was like this past season, where there's a, b- a bunch of guys sitting around a grill and they were asking this guy if he had closed the garage door. He's like, yeah, yeah, I, cl- I know I did. He's like, how sure are you? He's like, 99% sure. He's like, so you don't know. But now that's a funny way to ask this question. How sure do you have to be to know something, to claim that you know something. Do you have to infallibly be sure? Do you have to have a degree of justification so high that you could not even be wrong? If not, can you really claim to know anything? We'll have to see. It's epistemology. Can we ever be certain? Are there any things that we could be certain about? Everyone saw the movie The Matrix? Maybe not. Actually, no, I know some people that have seen the movie The Matrix. Okay. So, but, but, but Descartes very famously, that's how he got to, I think, therefore I am, right? He said, I could be, uh, I could be being tricked by an evil demon, right? Maybe I, maybe you've heard the brain in the vat scenario, or maybe I'm hallucinating my body and all of this. How would I possibly know? This is Cartesian skepticism, right? This pyronic, uh, pyronic skepticism. Uh, what if I'm hallucinating everything around me? How could I know? And that's where Descartes said, well, I'm thinking about it. So at least, there has to be someone at least considering the claim. That's how Descartes gets to, I think, therefore I am. He posits this incredible skepticism about everything. He concludes that if there's someone there to even be skeptical, there's, I've, I've got to exist. Then he, then he gets to a proof for God and says that God is not a deceiver, and that's how he creates his world. That's how he comes to have knowledge. So he starts with these fundamental questions. He's trying to do business with philosophy and understand how can I even know these things. Uh, so can we ever be certain? Is certainty required? How do we apprehend the world around us? How do we go about 
What are our tools that we have? It's culturally, personally, cognitive, faculty-wise. How do we get at the world? What are the ways that we do that? Okay. And then our cognitive faculties or the other tools that we use, we're going to talk about, are they reliable? If so, are they reliable in every situation? If not, when do we know which ones are reliable and which ones justify knowledge claims? And on and on and on. Now, I think without me giving going into this next section, you can probably tell how relevant some of this stuff is. Okay? So, you, so if someone were to ask hypothetically, why is this getting included in a peacemaking and conflict resolution course? Well, well, I have to say uh, that disagreement and claims to knowledge about certain things over the last two and a half years has really caused a rift in the church. People's claims to knowledge about a vaccine or a mask or racial, the structure of racial justice and injustice in America, or a polarizing election cycle, or who did what on January 6th, or on and on and on and on in this dizzying array of disagreement that I wish I could say that people just agreed to disagree on and moved about their lives, but that is simply not the case. Um, and you know this is the case. You know that families have been there's been rifts in families because of these things. People have headed out of churches because of these things. Uh, people have, in fact, in some cases, questioned the gospel because of these things. Uh, people have said, I thought I knew you until I realized that we share different understandings of the structure of fill-in-the-blank in America. So, I'm pretty sure you still know me. I just, you know, we just maybe disagree. No. No, we have drawn the line in the sand, and you have crossed the, the line I finally peeled the onion enough to realize the true you. Okay? We disagree on gun control. Look at this disaster that's, that's just happened. Is the solution less guns or more guns? And on and on and on. And you have disagreement. You have claims to knowledge. Here's the problem, knowledge claim. Here's the solution, knowledge claim. What counts as evidence for those things? How would we even go about adjudicating that dispute? All of it is just epistemology on a popular level. Here's the thing. Everyone is making presuppositions we're about to talk about. Everyone has evidence or what they consider evidence. Everyone puts their world together some way in terms of knowledge claims. But the vast majority of people, and it's okay, this isn't a shaming comment. vast majority of people never even studied the, the things. They're, they're, they're doing business up here, a foundation that they are just assuming in many cases. It's never been probed. All these questions about what kinds of things can we know, certainty, yada, yada, yada. Uh, oh, well, I don't, have the answer. I don't have any answers to any of those things. But that, is not, that does not prevent me from having unwavering certainty about the truth of my convictions up here. Okay? I was saying, I think one fruit of this will have being, everyone will have a little bit of humility in their dialogue because you'll realize that, man, hey, things are a lot more tricky than they often appear. Okay? Things are not quite as simple. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, there's been a lot of broken fellowship over this, and there has been tension between people and families and churches uh, over some of these kinds of things. And so I thought that in addition to scratching a bit of a little bit more philosophical, theological itch for some folks the second half of the class, that it would dovetail nicely with the peacemaking material because you're going to, sometimes the, the peacemaking material and this material that we're going through are going to overlap when you sit down with your, you know, unbelieving neighbor or whatever, like I did the other day. 
It was great. But these kind of things come to, come to a head. So it's a different kind of peacemaking, something maybe more like argument, adjudication, or something like that, thinking through some of these things. So I've chosen to include in that cla- the class for this reason. We'll discuss it over the next five weeks. Wait, is that many left? Oh, I have four weeks. This is eight. Or is it nine? Anyways, I'll figure it out. Don't worry about how many, how many weeks are left, okay? So we're going to start slow. Please ask the questions. Here's the here's thing. You don't have to pretend that you know about epistemology, okay? You don't. It's okay. Remember, I just asked if anyone knew what it was. We had one person, uh, a garrison, knew what epistemology was. Chase knows what epistemology is. He doesn't count, okay? But it's okay. You don't have to pretend like you know all, all, all this stuff. It's 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 not something that you would know. Why why would anyone here know this? If you, I mean you're not if you're not a philosophy major, you didn't do okay. So please ask the questions. I don't want this to just be a mindless lecture and it goes in one ear and out the other. Ask me questions. I'm happy. We can stop. We'll do thought experiments. We'll explain. We'll have discussion here. This is valuable. This is valuable stuff. It's not generally taught on. And here's our opportunity. What is a presupposition? If I were to say, what is a presupposition? What would you tell me? Someone tell me what a presupposition is. Okay, an assumption. Good way to say it. Any other way to say it? Okay, so you're expecting... Okay, yeah, so you were expecting something, a particular... Of course, I guess you could expect something and it not be a presupposition. It sounds to me... uh, yeah, maybe maybe that's a kind of presupposition. What else? What else could you think of it as? An instinct? Okay. An educated guess? Okay. Yeah, so I think you're going to have presupposition. It's interesting that what a presupposition is actually depends on the context you're making the statement. Okay? Because you could have like ultimate presuppositions about reality, but you could also have presuppositions about who's going to win the football game and presuppositions. You get, in other words, presuppositions are relative to whatever context you're talking about. Okay, so I'm presupposing some things right now that you know people are have some kind of desire to, which is a, it's a huge presupposition that anyone has a desire to listen uh, to this Sunday school. But I'm presupposing it in teaching. The class, I could be mistaken about. But then I have deeper presuppositions. Like, for example, I'm presupposing that my cognitive faculties are reliable and there are, in fact, a crowd of people before me. See, that's a presupposition at an even deeper level. So what a presupposition is really kind of depends on the context. However, I think we can just go with this. I don't want to overly complicate it. An unstated or unargued for belief or commitment, okay, relative to a particular context. So either I'm not stating it or I'm not arguing for it, or both, okay? Let me ask some questions. Uh, What are some examples, because I want to get our head around this, what are some examples of things we assume about ourselves and the way we see the world? What are some examples of things that we assume about ourselves and the way we see the world? Yeah, Noah. Okay, that our the our outlook on right uh, on life, excuse me, despite being wrong here, there, whatever, is generally on on track. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Okay, that our five senses, that our that our cognitive faculties, and that particularly our perception, uh, and that I guess that's really not cognitive. Your your perception, your your, your perceptive faculties work. When I'm tasting something, I'm you having a 
uh, a gustatory experience. I'm smelling something. I'm having an olfactory experience. These are the ways that I take in information from the world, and I'm assuming that they are generally reliable, right? I'm assuming they're generally reliable uh, with perhaps instances where they aren't reliable. So if I'm in a dark room, maybe I'm not going to, maybe my, my olfactory sense is still reliable, but my visual, my eyes aren't, right? So maybe what's reliable changes relative to context. But good, yeah, we all assume that our senses, generally speaking, are giving us accurate information. Now, if you're colorblind or something, you probably know that's not the case. But then that person has just a different set of presuppositions about the way they see things. They think, I see things, and it's probably not right. Yes, sir? You're colorblind. Hey, great. So you know that, that are you red-green colorblind? Are you just color red-green colorblind? Okay. So Jesse knows that when he looks at particular things, uh, it doesn't appear to him like it appears uh, to everybody else. Yeah. So what, um, what other examples do we assume about ourselves and the way we see the world? You think of any other ones? Yeah, Garrison. That the future will be like the past. So this is the famous problem of induction. We are going, we are reasoning that the sun came up yesterday and this morning, and so it's going to come up tomorrow. Uh, one part of epistemology is questioning. This is what David Hume did very famously. Um, questioned why I think that the future should resemble the past. You say, well, in the past, the future has resembled the past. Well, okay, but we're talking about the future. It's not. This is new frontier. You know, how, why are we thinking that the future should resemble the past? Certainly, something that we presuppose. Excellent. What else? Anything else you can think of? I'll just add one more here. Um, it seems to me that the vast majority of people think that they are pretty good reasoners, that they can think through things well. In other words, do you ever have you ever met anyone? Yeah, Asher, do you have a question, buddy? Okay, so we have assumptions about ourselves, and some of them, like that one, is certainly false, because you are good enough. Because Jesus said that you're good enough, and his opinion is the only one that counts. Okay? But, certainly, we uh, assume things like that. We carry around things like that all the time. Okay? We can assume really awful things about ourselves, and sometimes we assume megalomaniacal things about ourselves, like, I'm the best, I'm the smartest, I'm the this and that. Okay? Um, but but uh, to this point, I think that most people and you someone tell me I'd, I'd love to I'd love to hear pushback on this if this is if I'm off here. But in my experience, most people think, especially the ones who have the strongest convictions about everything from uh, yeah everything, um, that they are pretty good thinkers, critical thinkers and reasoners. Have you ever met someone who's like, you know what, I think terribly about life. I don't know. I need someone to just tell me uh, what, just tell me like the truth because I don't know how to think. How many people do you meet who say that? Yeah. I'm sorry? Your older brother is that way. Okay, so we have one example uh, Jesse's older brother. Anyone else? Anyone else meet people who think, who believe that about themselves on a regular basis? You. Okay, so so you know a couple. Okay, so yeah, well that's a great point because it's one thing to say that, but do people really live like that? 
do people really live like, I really don't know how to put things together. I don't know how to think well about things. And we all know that there are some people who just aren't good at reasoning. Okay? Uh, but everyone generally believes themselves to be a decent, competent reasoner. And the reason for that is clear enough. It's because in many cases, uh, for such a person, life would kind of be practically undoable in many, in many senses of the word if they didn't believe that about themselves. doesn't mean it's true, but it means that there is this... Uh, uh, it means that they have incredible prudential reason to believe that they are, in fact, uh, a good reasoner. Um, so I think those are some things we assume about ourselves. And I want you to understand uh, what happens if we found out that those things weren't true. So what if we found out we all came to believe today that the future won't resemble the past? Okay? And I don't mean like because Jesus will come back and make all things new. No, no, no. Like there's just fundamental things in reality about tomorrow won't be the same as they were today. Um, what if what if we found out that... Uh, that our, our, our perceptions were, were not accurate at all, ever. Uh, what if we found out that our memory was never accurate? Uh, what if we found out that we weren't actually good at reasoning? You see how that would really turn some things upside down? Okay? That'd be pretty serious, right? It would turn some things upside down. And while I don't think that we would get to that level and throw all of those things out, I think there are at, on each of those levels... Um, people are going to end up saying, oh, maybe you need to, uh, maybe you need to re-examine this presupposition, all right? What are some things that we presuppose about others? What are some things that we presuppose about other people? Yes, sir. That they don't comprehend? Okay, that they don't comprehend? What else? What do we, what do we pre tend to presuppose about other people? Okay, yeah, that they're basically just kind of think, think like, Think like we do. Maybe they feel like we do. We think that people would perhaps react like we would. Okay? What else do we tend to presuppose about other people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. So we tend to make assumptions and presuppositions about people's motives and people's intentions. Well, I know why they said that. They said that in order to fill in the blank with my interpretation. Right? Based on some kind of presupposition. There's a lot of that, man, on social media, isn't there? This is what this person did. To, it was for the optics. Anything else that we tend to presuppose about others that you can think of? I think sometimes we tend to presuppose that the, the reasons people don't people disagree with what we're saying is that they're not trying to listen to Yeah. Yeah. Great point. So, and that's actually that. Let me just click. Let me just click the next one because that's re related to this one. What are some things that we presuppose in conflict, ideological or personal? It may be exactly what Chase just articulated. It's like, oh, okay. I'm assuming that this person, if this person here is like compelling reasons, uh, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for an argument, some evidence here. I'm going to give them some arguments, and guess what? It, you're like, it didn't work. You're not listening. And I'll just tell you right now that as pastorally and philosophically, the worst mistake you can make here is someone who comes to you with a problem of evil, okay? Because they've experienced some kind of horrific suffering and they're trying to square that with the existence of God. And they come to you and what they're asking for sounds much like, very much like some defense or theodicy or some explanation of how God and evil can coexist. But do not take the bait for giving some kind of 
philosophical reply to the problem of evil there. Don't do it. Do not do it. Because that person might sound like what they're looking for is syllogisms, but they're wanting solace. They need someone to say, I'm so sorry. And you're going to get way more mileage talking about the suffering of Jesus and how Jesus suffers with his people and looking at the cross and looking at a good God and a suffering son than all of the syllogisms and the theodicies in the world there. Because you're expecting what this person, you're presupposing this person is coming with desiring X. They're not. They're coming desiring Y. Take it from me. I've messed that up a lot. And it's been bad. Okay? But I, now I have learned from that. And now you can learn without messing up. Okay. Anything else that we tend to presuppose in conflict, uh, ideological or personal? And ideological, I mean just ideas in general. I don't, I'm not trying to be. Yeah. Yes, okay, so this is great, and we'll talk more about this when we get to epistemology of disagreement. You know what? If we all knew that, listen, the reason we're disagreeing is because this person doesn't know what I know, okay? If we all knew the same set of facts here, we'd all be on the same page. And so the primary problem is we got to coach people up to know what, uh, uh, and I'm not, by the way, I'm, now I'm putting words in Rex's mouth. The, the, the primary problem is, maybe I have this disposition, let's just say some people do. The primary problem is we've got a bunch of ignoramuses who we need to coach up. Once we coach everyone up to know the right beliefs, they'll agree with me. Okay? Yes, sir. Yeah. Mm, yeah, understood. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes that happens. You just keep, keep putting one foot in front of another, don't you? Yeah, really well done. Um, good. Anything else? Anything else that we presuppose in conflict, ideological or personal? You know, one thing that I, uh, that I think sometimes we can presuppose is that the person that we're interacting with, with wants, that we have the same picture of what resolution looks like in conflict. Like we, we kind of, I'm presupposing that this person even knows what that even means. I presuppose that this person even understands what the reconciliation process even looks like. When in reality, a lot of people just don't. All they've learned is you go along for so long with a friend, something happens, boom, sorry, nothing lasts forever. I'll just find a new friend and see how long that one lasts. I mean, they almost don't even have any concept of resolution. So I can't go presupposing that, but we tend to. Presuppositions, all these are presuppositions. Am I entitled to these presuppositions, yes or no, or maybe? We'll see. It, gets, it can get thorny, okay? And that goes part of the way to answering our question here, is that is why think critically about presuppositions? Before I give the point, why, just why do you think? Why should we think critically about our presuppositions? Yeah. Okay, so a lot of them perhaps are, so, so they're, perhaps they're not all right. We'll say that. Maybe a lot of them are wrong, okay? What else? Why do we need to think very carefully about our presuppositions? Because they do an enormous amount of heavy lifting in our formation of belief and argument. Okay, yeah, so our presuppositions tend to form sometimes the bottom of the pyramid, right? I mean, if, 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 you, if you start with someone who is presupposing a naturalistic worldview and someone who's presupposing a Christian worldview, they're going to be miles apart down here, right? It's just like when you're driving on the interstate, 70 or 80. 70. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if I turn the wheel 
And everyone knows this to be the case. If I'm driving 70 miles an hour and I turn the wheel just this much and I keep it like that for one minute and the person next to me turns their wheel this much at 70 miles an hour and we just turned our wheels this much, after one minute, are we going to be anywhere near each other? No, not even close. But it's because there was a small disagreement way back here. And it has led to da, 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 da. And so now we're up here and we're worlds apart wondering, da, 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 da. But really the fundamental reason for our disagreement is way back down here at the, some of these presuppositional levels. Okay? So to Chase's point, the presuppositions often do a ton of heavy lifting in what people believe, whether they know it or not. Okay? Whether we know it or not. Okay? So, yeah, first of all, this is the most obvious one. We all have them. Everyone has presuppositions. Doesn't matter whether you thought about them well or not. Everyone has them. You can't get away from presuppositions. Here's what I'm suggesting uh, is that we should either know how to defend them or, here's the second option, be prepared to articulate why they don't require a defense. Maybe there are some presuppositions that simply don't require an argument or a reason. That they just are. Talk more about that as we get into things here. Okay? To Rex's point, just because we have, all have presuppositions, it doesn't mean that they're good. It doesn't mean that we're entitled to them, even though we have them. So, we articulate, why am I reasonable for believing this, continuing to hold this? Or, here's a reason why I actually don't think I need to give a reason here. Okay, I just believe it. I believe it because of this, but it's not a reason. We'll talk about what that could mean. And then, to Chase's point... Conceptual foundations and presuppositions have an overwhelming influence on one's conclusions about particular issues. And so I'm going to run through these real quick. If we don't get one for each one, I'm not going to pause on each one. But I just want you to see this uh, that I just sketched out uh, uh, briefly. Um, can someone give me an example of a theological presupposition that you might hear that might affect things? Or someone might, maybe in just, maybe something, how about this? Something someone might say that shows they have a huge presupposition under what they're saying, theologically. What do you think? Okay, there is only one God, certainly. So I'm committing myself, so in that I'm presupposing that all the other world, polytheistic world religions are wrong. Right? Good. What else? A loving God would not send anyone to hell. Yes, I, yeah, very good. A loving God wouldn't send anyone to hell. What, the example I have written down here is funny is a loving God, just like a loving dad, would never allow suffering he could easily prevent. What's the presupposition there? All suffering is, all suffering is bad, or all suffering is evil, perhaps, is maybe a little bit more specific. All suffering at the end of the day is, is evil or bad, but what else, what is it, but it also presupposes something about God, doesn't it? That God is like a what? He's like a human father in a very specific kind of way. In other words, the statement, a loving God, just like a loving father, would never allow suffering he could easily prevent, presupposes a, it presupposes a bit of analogical reasoning between God and my dad. And there are some times where analogies are good and sometimes at which they're bad. But I'm, someone presupposes that. It seems very intuitively strong when you say it, but you have to say, hmm, is that a presupposition I'm entitled to? Maybe it is. Let's see. Yeah, Asher. I'm sorry? 
Okay, so I would say that that's probably not a presupposition. That would just be a con probably a belief that someone has about themselves, right? Um, so they probably, if you were to ask them, they would probably say, why do you believe you're saved? They would probably tell some story about why they believe that. It's usually not just something that they presuppose. However, in the church, you might presuppose other people are saved when they are. Oh, okay, that someone else is saved. Yeah, we might just assume and presuppose that the person sitting next to us in church in virtue of being in a church, is a Christian. And in fact, as we've seen in our own church, it's not necessarily true. And by that, I mean we've baptized at least two members of our church in the past seven years, right? Who were like, oh, I'm not actually a Christian, but now I am. Okay. All right, what about, uh, what about social? If no one can think of a quick social one, I'm just going to skip over it. Can anyone think of a social statement that has some pretty serious presuppositions baked into it? All right, moving along. Ethical. Ethical. Okay, stealing is bad. What does that presuppose? Okay, well, that would be, yeah, okay. Property rights that they exist, okay. What else does it presuppose? I say something's bad. Yeah, bad for whom? Bad for you? Bad for me? Bad for the economy? What are we saying? Oh, you're saying this is, you, you say something is bad. Sounds like you're committing yourself to saying that there are things that are wrong and things that are right, things that are bad. So bad and good are value categories, right and wrong, these more normative obligation categories. But you seem to be committed to some kind of framework where there actually is a true difference, objective difference between right and wrong, something to ground those things. Um, yeah. Oh, social. Okay, sure, sure. Okay, what, what, accept, what, what acceptable behavior is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I think that's good. I think that's a great example. Yeah, certainly. We presuppose that certain things should or shouldn't happen in social settings. It's like, well, why? Well, what if someone just gets up and yells and screams because they're protesting injustice in the middle of our service? Okay, well, someone comes in here with a sign. They come up with a huge poster, and they stand in front of, of the thing there, and they disrupt our whatever. Most of, most of us would be like, that's, that's inappropriate. What this person is doing is inappropriate, Okay. Well, someone can say, well, who, who, who's to say? According to your social convention, yeah. Because you're trying to be oppressive, and this person is trying to bring light to whatever. Okay? And I could say that without even clarifying any issue. It's just period. End of story. We would say we, we, there are social norms that we presuppose are right. Maybe some of them are right or wise or acceptable or whatever. Maybe some of them are. Probably some of them aren't. Okay? Great example, Noah. Thank you. Um, so yeah, ethical. Great example from Rex there. Uh, I put this one as well, a little, little bit more nuanced. We should treat others how we want to be treated, which is why I am brutally honest, specific, and candid whenever I speak. It's efficient and effective in how I grow personally. Okay? That person presupposes, hey, this is, this is how people want to be spoken to. Okay. What about psychological, psychological presuppositions we make? I only have five minutes. 
It's okay. We'll, we'll end it with this. Any, can anyone think of any psychological presuppositions or statements that people make that carry some pre- psychological presuppositions with them or in them? Okay, certainly. So, like, make a, like a mechanical intelligence versus like a bookish kind of intelligence versus a creative intelligence. Okay, yeah, perhaps. What else? I, I intentionally made it very vague because I wanted to see what people would say. Could it? Could it? Probably does. But uh, what? What? what uh, Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So something like that. My mental illness is the exact, or the so I have physical illnesses, I have mental illnesses, and they're just they're just kind of two forms of illnesses, like having a rash on your arm versus your leg. I mean, so it's the same thing. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe there's some element again. That's yeah. So 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 that's a, a, a that's a that's a great example. Okay. Any other uh, psychological presupposition? Uh, uh, pre- and by the way, I'll say that some people presuppose the exact opposite, which is funny, right? Some people's presupposition is, no, of course they're not the same. Of course they're not the same. It's funny how your symptoms don't present in the middle of uh, Sunday school like that cancer patient's symptoms do without their, you know, involuntary. So, in other words, so, we, so there's, there's uh, and, and by the way, I have to say, because I've been here, you take one person who presupposes one thing about the mental illness, physical illness kind of disease model, another person who assumes a very opposite, and they get into a conversation. Ooh, man, that one gets dicey really quickly. Okay, am I right? Okay, very, very quickly. Presupposition, though. Ah. Yes, yes, very good. Charles, and also reiterated by Carl Truman in his book where he says over the past, uh, where he talks about the past hundred years, a hundred years ago it used to be, um, I feel like I'm a man who feels like I'm a woman. And so uh, it used to be, well, then, I mean, you're, like, you're like, okay, we see you. Like, you're, you're clearly a man, trust me. Uh, what we need to do is get you some, some mental health. There's something wrong. That's terrible, by the way. Think how terrible it would be to, to genuine, not, not fake like a fad for high school, like genuinely feel as though you were a woman in a man's body. It'd be terrible. We say, it is terrible. We want to get you some help with a mental health professional. Now it has shifted to, I feel like I'm a woman in a man's body. All right, well, let's get out the clippers. Let's schedule the surgery. Let's get the hormones going. Okay, so... That there's the shift psychologically to a focus on inner life in terms of identity and value, uh, or well, identity particularly, particularly sexual gender, uh, gender identity, um, that is far different than it was. Okay, people are presupposing different things even in ordinary conversations now. And of course, when you get into the discussions, you're getting arguments and not presuppositions. But when you just meet someone, you start talking, they will have presuppositions about what makes someone a man or, or a woman. Okay, psychological. What about anthropological? Actually, we're going to skip anthropological because I want to get to political. What are some political presuppositions? Not to be confused with your political view, because I don't care. Your political presuppositions. What are political presuppositions that people make? 
okay? Our form of government is the best, okay? Democracies in the West seem to have thrived. Other places, not quite as much. Great, yay for two cheers for democracy, right? Okay, what else? People, people have inalienable rights, okay? That's, I guess, yes, certainly works its way into politics, certainly. What else? What are the things that we assume politically? Yes. Okay. So we demonize people because we create certain categories and say, okay, I'm in this, uh, I'm in this camp. You're in this particular camp, uh, and therefore you are, uh, you are anathema to me. So at least socially, socially anathema because of your political uh, persuasion. Uh, we are at time. I know this is. I really appreciate all the contributions. We're at time. Um, I hope this has whet your appetite for more of the second part of this uh, class. Uh, I need to pray for us. If you have any questions, let's keep the uh, conversation going. We'll circle back up next time and we'll jump right into. Um, what are our foundational sources of knowledge? How do we get at the world? Okay, let's pray. God, um, we're thankful to have considered these things. We pray that you would help us consider them sober-mindedly in ways that, that help our own thought life, help our own relationships, help our own interactions with others. We pray your blessings on our upcoming service. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, thank you.